I needed to not skate by for once in my life, and they didn't let me. At the end of the day, if you know that you don't feel good about the job, you got to be able to leave that behind. They just kept asking me to come back, and I truly love Milwaukee and Southeast Wisconsin. It's always great to be at WTMJ. This is WTMJ Conversations. Welcome to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Rear Admiral Douglas Perry is a 1989 graduate of the Naval Academy, and he currently serves as Director of Undersea Warfare Division, Office of the Chief of Naval Operations. He is in Milwaukee for Navy Week, and Admiral, it is a pleasure to have you here, sir. It's great to be here, Libby. Great to be back. You were at Marquette for a while, too, weren't you? I was. My first assignment after being a junior officer on a fast-tack submarine was to come here to Marquette University, Milwaukee, and serve as an instructor at the Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps unit at Marquette University. So from 1994 to 1996, I taught young midshipmen and a couple of courses, engineering, leadership, and taught sailing, actually, from the Milwaukee waterfront at the Yacht Club. So I had a couple lasers down there, so I spent a lot of time on the waterfront sailing here. Great to be back. You are in town, as we said, for Milwaukee Navy Week. What exactly is that? Navy Week is really our opportunity to engage with communities all around the United States. But here in Milwaukee, this is our fourth Navy Week. The last one that we did was in 2018. And it's really an opportunity for the Navy to come into town with young men, women, sailors, some crew members from the USS Milwaukee, the newest littoral combat ship built up at Marinette, for us to come into town and show what we do by having conversations in the community and kind of express how awesome the career opportunities are for young men and women in the Navy, officers enlisted. It's also an opportunity to reconnect with some legacy of the maritime forces that are here in the Great Lakes and wherever else we do fleet weeks. You know, we built about 100 ships here in Milwaukee Shipbuilding Corporation across World War I and World War II. Manitowoc, Wisconsin, we built some fantastic World War II submarines. The Cobia is still up there as a museum. So it's really to connect. It is to recruit. We're in a fight for talent. And so we got to get out and express, hey, what is the value of our maritime force and connect with the community? What is the value of the maritime force in 2023? We essentially are starting the ninth decade of prosperity that largely has been on the back of the United States Navy. Since the end of World War II, the global commons, the oceans, have been free and open for commerce. Over 90% of the goods and services that flow around the world go over the sea. That's raw materials, oil, gas, iron ore, coal, or finished goods from anywhere, coming to the United States anywhere. Since World War II, it has been the United States that is with our allies and partners, enforce the international law of the sea, the rule of law that the world has the right to travel freely outside of their own territorial waters to trade goods. And we've been protecting that. So preserving the prosperity of the globe is the reason why the Navy matters. 
But we are a maritime nation. The Atlantic on the east, the Pacific on the west, Arctic north and Gulf of Mexico south and the Caribbean. We are a maritime nation. So the Navy has to be far forward defending our interests and frankly, patrolling the globe with our allies and partners, showing strength on a daily basis that international world order must be preserved. We have a few adversaries who don't see it the same way and would like to and frequently do ignore that rule of law and would as soon control, seize and invade other countries against what we believe to be right. We're out there preserving with deterrence with our allies and partners. When you talk to enlisted men and women, what message do you give them in terms of the importance of the Navy? Well, first and foremost, I ask them, what are they getting out of the Navy and what are their goals? Usually the next words out of my mouth are, thank you for serving. It is a small segment. Just 1% of our U.S. population is actually in uniform. Only about 20% of young men and women are eligible to serve in uniform due to a number of physical and other restrictions. And so we really value the men and women for their willingness to serve, to put on a uniform, whether that's enlisting for a term of enlistment that's five to seven years or going and getting a commission at the Naval Academy or Marquette University university and serving in a variety of fields. So what we believe to be so important with our young men and women is that they understand how much we value them. We're invested in them to train them to be masters of their craft, whatever their profession is. They might be a submariner, a pilot, an oceanographer, a meteorologist, an aviation technician, but we owe it to them to take care of them mentally, morally, physically, psychologically, and help them through the challenges that really are being in the Navy for deploying, being in a small unit, maybe submerged on a submarine, which is what I do. Those are some challenging times. So we're committed to them to take care of them as well as to train them in a professional field. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. There are some realistic psychological challenges about being in a small space submerged. Rear Admiral Doug Perry talks about life on a submarine. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back. I'm Libby Collins. We're talking with United States Navy Rear Admiral Doug Perry about his life on a submarine. You bring up submarines. I have to ask you about that because I'm claustrophobic. That has to be... You're in a pretty small room here, Libby. <laughs> oh, not I, mean... a, I, I think a submarine is probably <laughs> smaller. But what I'm saying is it must take a really special person to, first of all, want that assignment. And secondly, to serve on a submarine. So there are some realistic psychological challenges about being in a small space submerged. But I would tell you after serving in submarines for 34 years, if one can get past that nuance, that challenge, there is no better team sport on planet Earth than serving in a U.S. nuclear-powered submarine. It is the, the quintessential high-performing teams. Every person on board that submarine is a watchstander. So there are no spare personnel who are there just to train or just to ride. Everybody has to stand to watch because there are no extra bunks. Um, and so you, know, you could break it down the way I describe 
to being a submariner is we we have a, a forward watch standers who operate the combat end, the sensing end, the navigation end of the submarine, and then the aft end of the submarine is largely the engineering spaces. And there's about 12 to 15 people, so that's about the size of an athletic team. I became a Packer fan when I was here in 94, when Brett Favre was quarterback. So it's about the size of one offensive team. You got a quarterback that's the engineering off the watch, and he's got key role players, his reactor operator, his engineering watch supervisor who lead the team. They plan for their watch ahead of time. They go through what are the evolutions that are going to take place? What is the ship doing? How much speed will the ship need today? Can I do these maintenance evolutions? They'll plan it out. The technicians who are well-trained to operate the plant as well as do maintenance on turbine generators, valves, pumps, they'll plan out their maintenance and then they'll execute the plan and then afterward they'll debrief just like a post-game video review of, hey, you missed this pass, you fumbled here. And so that's how this team works to get better every single day. So it's an ultimate team sport. What's the longest you've ever been submerged? (laughs) Uh, 92 days. 92 days. What is that like? And especially when you've got your team... You've got the rest of the crew trying to get them through that. So my first assignment was on a fast tech submarine. So we deployed to the European area of responsibility. And our job at that time was to do some intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, largely focused on European adversaries. We were focused on Russian capabilities. And so we did some submarine tracking. But Largely for that 92 days, I got up at probably 5 a.m., ran on the treadmill, got changed, had breakfast, did the pre-watch brief and tour, and then figured out what we were going to do that day, and I was a junior officer of the deck. So we were in a particular location. You had to study the navigation plot. Where were we? What was the weather like? What ships were we going to see? What was the fishing traffic light so you could navigate around that sense? What sensors were deployed to give us an understanding of how we were going to be employing those sensors? And then I would go stand an eight-hour watch, and we would spend most of that time at periscope depth. So I would be on a periscope, literally looking one eye out at the world. It was summertime, and we were north of the Arctic Circle for some of that. So it was light for 24 hours a day and pulled in some ports in Norway. But that time underway was so busy with us kind of carrying out that far forward deployed, we are ready, we are capable with the most capable submarine platforms, weapons, and ready to employ that if necessary, keeping an eye on our adversaries. But we were basically training for combat every day we were underway by being forward deployed around the globe with some allies and partners to be ready for combat. But by being there, we really presented sort of a deterrent effect against, at that time, it was young Russian Berlin Wall had just come down. And so that time translates to what do our submariners do every day and our aircraft carriers. They basically practice to being ready to go into combat. And by doing that, they kind of present a pretty strong signal to adversaries that today is just not the day to mess with the United States. And by doing that with allies and partners, we kind of share that burden of integrated deterrent. 
Still ahead on WTMJ Conversations. The United States Navy is the most capable Navy that exists today. Navy Rear Admiral Doug Perry talks about provocation from China and Russia. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Let's return to our conversation with Naval Rear Admiral Doug Perry. You're in a unique position because you've been in the Navy for, what, almost 35 years. So you were in prior to 9-11 and, of course, post-9-11. How has the Navy evolved in those years? Is it, a, is it different than it was when you first became an officer? It certainly has changed a lot. When I was at the Naval Academy studying to be an officer, the Berlin Wall was still up and we were still studying the Soviet Union. Berlin Wall came down as I graduated from the Naval Academy. We could say sarcastically that a peace broke out. But essentially, for two decades, we did shift our focus as a Navy. We had other priorities for national security as we went through the 90s. Some violent extremist organizations changed our view of where we needed to focus as a defense department. And certainly on September 11th, and I was at the Pentagon that day, our focus in the near term of what threats are really front and center to the United States. We did have to shift our focus as a Navy of where we need to employ our ships and aircraft. It was in support of some missions in the Middle East, certainly in Afghanistan and Iraq, in defense of partners, Iraqi freedom. During that time, China was investing heavily in their Navy. Essentially, they've invested massively in their nuclear armed forces. So they have a nuclear capability both aboard their ballistic missile submarines, with their rocket forces, and with their aircraft. They have a triad. That occurred at a time when the nation was focused in two land wars. And so the Navy, as we came out of those land wars, was able to and needed to refocus its energy on the Indo-Pacific. To that area of responsibility, if you remember back to when Barack Obama was president, he made a focus shift and called it broadly the pivot to the Pacific. And that pivot to the Pacific is really because the Indo-Pacific region is really where the geostrategic challenges are for us going forward from a national security perspective. The 1980s, 1990s, U.S. in a bipolar sort of strategic deterrent posture with the Soviet Union and then with Russia after the Berlin Wall came down. Then we focused on some land wars. And now we are in a tripolar world. First time in our nation's history, we now have two nuclear capable nations, China and Russia, who have the will and the capability to really present an existential threat to the United States. But China is investing heavily. They have grown their armed forces dramatically over the last couple of years. So we have been for the last decade shifting our focus to create a larger Navy, more capable with young men and women who are ready to serve in that region with our allies and partners. That's kind of a thread there. A few months ago, 60 Minutes ran a story about exactly what you're discussing in terms of China being very aggressive 
in terms of preparedness in the United States Navy keeping up with that. When a story like that comes out, does it hurt morale? No, it does not. If you listen to Admiral Poparo, Commander Pacific Fleet, and the Chief of Naval Operations discuss where we are relative to Russia and China, we are confident in our capabilities. The United States Navy is the most capable Navy on planet Earth that has ever existed and exists today. We do not have the largest Navy any longer. The People's Liberation Army Navy, the PLAN, Chinese Navy, is now larger than ours. But we have men and women who we train to think independently, to act independently, and adroitly based upon incredible training that outmatches our peers. We are being challenged. I mean, the margins are razor thin. And so our ability to get the right people, young men and women, we're in a competition for talent to train them to be the best and to give them the best platforms so that we can be ready and meet them on a daily basis and be there where they are challenging us. The discussions in that 60 Minutes episode really were about what's happening in the Indo-Pacific region and the behaviors of China being aggressive, ignoring the rule of law, coercing our allies and partners, coercing other nations is unacceptable to us. We have to be there demonstrating freedom of navigation through international waters so that they do not set precedent of them controlling them and calling them their backyard. I'm confident it's challenging from getting the right resources, which is my business today. But make no mistake, our sailors, our ships, they're the best in the world today. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. I said, we're next. Within two seconds, I heard a big, heavy rumble, like a train running into a concrete building. United States Navy Rear Admiral Doug Perry talks about his experience in the Pentagon on 9-11. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Let's return to our conversation with Naval Rear Admiral Doug Perry. I got to back up here, and I should have asked you this as a follow-up, but you said you were at the Pentagon on 9-11. What was that experience like? You were under attack. There was no question about it. Sure. I'll tell this story, and I'll try to go quickly. So I'm a cyclist, and I got that from being here in Milwaukee. I rode in that morning. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. Just it doesn't get any better on the East Coast than September 11, 2001. Crystal clear. Go into the office, and, and I was the youngest guy at Navy Legislative Affairs in my office. And I was nicknamed Boot Camp. They said, hey, Boot Camp. Check out on C-SPAN and take a look and find out what happened on the National Defense Authorization Act. It was on the Senate floor for vote last night. Let's see what happened. So I turn around, turn on the television, and I'm clicking through. And the commentators on, I think, CNN in New York City were like, hey, ladies and gentlemen, we're turning our cameras over to the World Trade Center. Apparently, someone has flown a Cessna into the South Tower. And I look at this and I'm immediately stuck. I don't even get to C-SPAN. Bright, clear day. Didn't make sense that someone had flown a Cessna in. I said, hey, J. Rowe, who was an aviator, had commanded an air wing at sea. A plane has just flown into the World Trade Center. So he comes over and he watches. I look over 
intel officers in the office just walks in. And I said, hey, Valerie, might want to call down to the JIOC and see what they know. Plane just flew into World Trade Center. Okay. I pick up the phone. We had just had our first daughter. I call my wife, Joanne, who is on her first walk after a cesarean section for our first daughter. And she's walking with her girlfriend, whose husband is also in the building and had already commanded a submarine. And he's one of my mentors, one of my very good friends, Joe Malloy. So Beth Malloy, Joanne are walking in Arlington with our daughter. And I say, hey, a plane just flew into World Trade Center. You guys doing all right? I don't know anything, but I think I'm going to call your mom because she's going to ask me what I know, and I don't know anything. I call my mother-in-law in Mishawaki, Indiana. Hey, Betsy, I know you're probably going to wonder in a few minutes what is happening in New York City. Oh, what's going on? Well, turn on the TV. A plane's just gone into World Trade Center. I don't know anything. Just want to let you know, Joanne's fine. I'm fine. And as I'm looking up, as I'm speaking to her at that very moment, the second plane flies into the other tower. And at that moment, I said, Betsy, I don't know anything yet, but just stay tight. Joanne's fine. She's walking at Arlington National Cemetery with Beth. We're going to be fine. I'll be in touch. I called Joanne back. I said, a second plane just flew into the World Trade Center. Be careful. I'll be in touch when I can. We're under attack in some way, shape, or form. I don't know anything more. She said, okay, hang up the phone. And I say, hey, J-Row, I haven't heard any planes flying over the Pentagon. Now, the Pentagon is situated right at National Airport. It's between National Airport and Roslyn's across the Potomac River from the Washington Monument. At that time, that was the commuter flight path to National Airport, Ronald Reagan. And so we were on the fifth deck of the Pentagon, And the windows were always open because it was too cold in the summer and it was too hot in the winter. But the planes would fly over like about 50 feet above the building every day. We're not hearing any planes. And I looked at J-Ro. I said, we're next. If someone's attacking the United States, this is a regular flight path. They're going to fly right here. Within two seconds, I heard a big heavy rumble like a train running into a concrete building. And it was the flight hitting the west corridor of the Pentagon. So that was one individual's experience of being under attack in our homeland. That's my personal story. But the reality is what we realized on that day is that the United States, the continental United States, Washington, D.C., New York, we are not a safe haven. We are not a sanctuary and that people can reach out and attack us here in the United States. As a naval officer, when that occurred, I would imagine there was a combination of chaos and we have to get to work. And what do we do next? Absolutely. Now, the Pentagon, it wasn't a fighting headquarters, if you will, from the standpoint of having forces. So it was take care of the people there. Our Navy watch floor was heavily hit. And in fact, we lost a whole watch section on our Navy watch floor. A good friend of mine was on terminal leave. They asked him to come back, and he ended up coming back into the Navy and serving 34 years. So our lesson that day was constant vigilance and having forward-deployed naval forces that deter an adversary far away from our shores is the way we defend the homeland. If we try to stop a strike, someone trying to hit us, and they've already gotten across into the United States, that's too late. 
It really was at that time where we confirmed that our concept of operations for defending the homeland is the Navy will be a four-deployed maritime force leading the joint force around the globe. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. It's loud. It's a place with a fair number of hazards. One of the most amazing places on planet Earth. Naval Rear Admiral Doug Perry talks about the thrill of being on an aircraft carrier when the Top Gun pilots take off. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Let's return to our conversation with Naval Rear Admiral Doug Perry. When you see these situations of provocation, particularly in Southeast Asia, in the seas there, were those always going on or has that grown in frequency? Yeah, so they have grown in frequency. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but in the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the United States had interactions that tested a pilot, tested a ship driver, a Soviet ship driving very close to a U.S. ship or literally a tactical aircraft coming right up on the wingtips and then hitting afterburners. You know, they're doing that today. The Chinese are now doing that on an occasional basis. The dynamic that has changed, as I mentioned Now there are two nations doing that to us in areas where we are with our allies and partners demanding to be recognized as these are international locations where we have the freedom to navigate in the air or on the sea. The challenge comes with training young men and women, pilots, I'll use that example, to be steady enough on the control stick, on the throttle, such that they've had the training that when that engagement occurs, when they are harassed, that they can stay calm and understand the risk that that presents to their aircraft and then get through the scenario, but being ready to respond, but not be provoked. And that is difficult. That is difficult. You know, I'll say keep your cool. You have to have a great platform. You need to have great sensing. You need to have ready weapons to defend yourself at a time of peace. We don't want to be provoked. We have to demonstrate that we will be there for freedom of navigation, etc., and prevent any conflict from going out of control, if you will. I think that comes back to your point, though, about attracting the right talent, attracting the right young men and women to be part of the Navy. And what are you looking for? When a person comes into the recruiting station or wants to sign up for ROTC, or certainly if they have the ability, what attributes is the Navy looking for? Well, first and foremost, we are looking for young men and women who want to serve. There has to be a desire to serve because there will be challenges throughout, and we do have a requirement for a certain period of time, you know, five years. So, A desire to serve is number one. And two is aptitude and physical ability. In the classroom, performance is really important because of how highly technical most of our jobs are, almost all of our jobs are. So a nuclear submariner, you will have to do calculus, physics, chemistry, and the ability to handle those curriculum in an academic setting and then apply them to real world, looking at gauges and the performance of a nuclear reactor plant 
when you're steaming at 100% power and trying to drive the ship to be mobile, or for a pilot, he's going to need to understand physics of, of, uh, of flight. I'm an aerospace engineer, so you'll need to understand, you know, some Bernoulli math, some Bernoulli equations, etc., so that you can understand what's going to happen when an engine stalls out. Why did it stall out? What do I need to do to recover that engine? So the aptitude is really essential first. And secondly, we'll put people through stress. We will be tasked with watches on a submerged submarine or on a flight deck of an aircraft carrier, which was one of the most amazing places on planet Earth. A flight deck of an aircraft carrier during flight ops. Every 30 seconds, imagine an afterburner F-18 taking off from that aircraft carrier. At the same time, we're recovering aircraft maybe two, three different types of aircraft. It's loud. It's a place with a fair number of hazards. And so a person has to have the technical skills just mastered so that they're not thinking about how to do their job, but they've got their head on a swivel and they're looking around for, okay, Aircraft coming in in 20 seconds, they're going to bring that aircraft in. The recovery wire is coming back into position, and that's driven by a steam catapult um, or, you know, a steam system bringing it back. It's just a, a lot of technical challenges. So on those spaces, both the physical abilities to handle that, that stress and the mobility, getting around quickly, hauling wires, pushing aircraft into position, in addition to just being able to handle the technical challenges of a particular uh, field, uh, whether that's nuclear engineering or, or avionics. I would think when a movie like Top Gun is released, you get a lot of calls of people who want to join. We do. We get a lot. And not just for the pilot aspects, but if you saw in that movie, there was so much going into preparing an aircraft. You know, you've got aviation technicians, uh, mechanics who are turning that aircraft around in a number of hours so it can fly again at Mach 1 plus. You know, the stresses being put on that aircraft are immense. And it's young sailors who are checking that aircraft out, reloading the weapon systems, etc. Yeah, we get a lot of calls. It is a great recruiting tool. And that's a pretty good team sport you saw from that movie as well. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. I just packed up my house for the 31st time to make my 31st move. Rear Admiral Doug Perry talks about the stress of being a Navy spouse. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. I'm Libby Collins. Today's conversation is with Rear Admiral Doug Perry. What about spouses? How demanding is it to be a spouse of someone who is in the Navy? So it is really challenging. And to all of the, the Navy families out there, thank you from the bottom of my heart for what our spouses and frankly our families do to support the service members so my own story starts with my mom being the mother of seven and the wife of a navy captain who commanded a submarine so she basically raised all seven kids i mean my dad was a great dad but he was deployed for 17 years in a row through the cold war um and so it was my mom that raised it my wife 
took on that same responsibility, raised our three daughters. But I think the challenge there and maybe the opportunity is similar to what your first question. What do I look for and, and what are my first words to someone who's in the Navy? You know, are we taking care of you? What is it you need for your children to take care of them? Are we taking care of you and the stresses of moving? I just packed up my house for the 31st time to make my 31st move. And, uh, you know, it's challenging to move every two years. What does your wife feel about moving 31 times? I mean, that's that's something I can't even conceive. So, uh, fortunately, I have a wife as... Most of our service members do, who absolutely support the mission. They understand how important the Navy is to the nation. We're a maritime nation. We have to be forward deployed. We have to be strong. And we have to be ready. And they know that. What, what do they think about moving 31 times? I, I don't there's – there's some adventure to it. Uh, there's some joy in going to a new location I would not have come here to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, had I not been in the Navy. But we lived in Hawaii for seven years. So our three daughters kind of grew up without knowing what shoes really were for a couple of years because they're running around, you know, with flip-flops and and sundresses, you know, because Hawaii is fantastic. But then we moved in the dead of winter to Washington, D.C., and they figured out pretty quickly they need shoes. So it's it's an adventure. You know, we had that in our lexicon. You know, it's not just a job and it's an adventure, but it's it's challenging. And the men and women who choose to support a husband or a wife or a partner, they're fantastic. I couldn't thank them enough for what they're doing. Which brings us back to Navy Week. Yeah. And the importance of recruiting and attracting people who have the talent, as you said, and the attributes to serve. It is really a fantastic opportunity to tell the story of being a submariner, being in the Navy. I grew up as a Navy brat in Norfolk, Virginia. So I, it was kind of in my blood. I always wanted to lead. I wanted to go to the Naval Academy and I wanted to lead teams. But the world has changed a lot in the last several decades. But the opportunities to serve and really have a purposeful job to operate with the most advanced technologies that that are on the globe and be a part of a joint force and, you know, out with allies and partners to preserve the prosperity, it's really meaningful for me. And the Navy is really important. We are defending the homeland and we are preserving the security, which really is the prosperity of the United States, you know, far forward. And you get to see the world. And I, Coleman and I have been throughout the Western Pacific. I've been throughout Europe uh, and I work with sort of my peers at, say, a dozen different nations on a regular basis, really to share with them our capabilities as we can so we can be interchangeable, interoperable with our partners so they can help us share that burden of integrated deterrence. Admiral Douglas Perry, I can't thank you enough for sharing your experiences with us. You're welcome. It's great to be back. We've been talking with Naval Rear Admiral Doug Perry about everything from the provocation of China and Russia on our sailors and on our ships in the Southeast Seas to Admiral Perry's personal experience at the Pentagon on 9-11. And of course, we talked about the sailors who are serving our country so bravely. Now, if you joined us late, 
and you want to hear our entire conversation with Rear Admiral Perry, go to WTMJ.com and share today's show with your friends and family, especially if they have relatives who are serving in the United States Navy. You'll also find a partial transcript courtesy of eCourt Reporters. For WTMJ Conversations, I'm Libby Collins.